Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. to the BritFlix.com podcast. Today Great, I've got with me Jake West. Hello, Jake. Hello. Sorry, I was butting in there, but thanks very much for having me on board the podcast today. And we're here to talk about Video Nasty's Draconian Days, which is the follow-up documentary of uh, Moral Panic that you did uh, a couple of years ago. Do you want to give us a brief synopsis of what this second chapter is all about? Um, yes, Draconian Days uh, follows up from where we left off in our first documentary, which is in 2010. And the first documentary covered the original Nasty Scare and the birth of home video, which basically covered the period from about 1978, which was when home video recorders came into people's homes. And that went up to 1985, which was the inaction of the Video Recordings Act, which came about because video was unregulated and the press and the politicians were trying to ban horror films because they said they were destroying society, which wasn't, in fact, true. But all of that stuff kicked off, and it was a very, very bizarre time. Um, Draconian Days picks up from 1985, the inaction of the Video Recordings Act, and takes us all the way through to 1999. And in that period, you had a number of key events, with the BBFC now being the statutory body responsible for um, classifying all videos in the UK, um, and that meant increased censorship, certainly in horror films, which came to fairly draconian levels. During that time, you had a number of events, such as the James Bolger murder, the Michael Ryan massacre, and um, the David Orson Amendment, which came in to try and stop all videos from being released, which were above a PG rating. So, And that basically had a, the fallout of increasing censorship and created what is now the kind of underground video network of fans and film festivals and fanzines, which have now evolved into things like Fright Fest and various websites and magazines. So it was really a time which, through the restrictions, created a great deal of creative energy as well. So it's quite a fascinating period. It is. It's a wonderful story. And, 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 and briefly, listeners, if you've not had a chance to read, I've, I've attempted to try and capture it in a review where... I'm not, I'm not too proud to admit it's the first five-star review I've ever written, to be honest with you. So I, I won't pretend to be too objective here because I'm a big fan of this documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. And like I say, the fact that you gave it a five-star review and I think it's something that you genuinely appreciated and when you saw it, you, you, I think you could see that it had quite a lot of depths and it certainly reminded you of things 
that you were aware of when you were growing up, but probably threw in some other stuff that kind of gave you additional knowledge. And I think that's the thing with this documentary. It was designed to be informative, but still quite entertaining. And we've got a vast array of, you know, very unusual kind of archive clips with people like Mary Whitehouse surrounded by oiled up Rambos to, you know, quite tragic news clips of like the Ryan massacre and things like that. So it's quite an evocative piece, I think. And, you know, we're really proud of what we achieved with it. No, no, no. Now, before we go into more detail about it, which we will do, um, let's just rewind the clock a bit on yourself, because obviously you're not just a documentary filmmaker. You've got feature films under your belt too, um, yeah. as well as other projects. Um, so from, from, from your point of view, what, what do you remember being a tipping point where... You, you, you know, a who or a what made you think, I want to be a filmmaker? Well, basically, um, ever since, you know, I was growing up, um, my, I was fortunate because both my, my parents were big film fans, big cinema okay. fans, and they had always gone to the cinema as, as kids themselves and growing up. So I was very lucky that when I was a child, I got taken to the cinema a lot. And, um, you know, I, I, I became in love with cinema at a very young age. So as I as I grew up, and it, this was I was a teenager in the in the 80s, the mid 80s. So that was a time when video technology was just being introduced. So in the late 80s, I managed to get hold of a, a video camera for the first time, and I started making just funny little home video movies with my mates, like you know little horror films or shootout sort of gunfights, mm. just just sort of really fun stuff that you wanted to do as a kid, just emulating the stuff that I liked. And um, from that, that was the genesis of me becoming a filmmaker. At the time, you know, it was there were very little in the way of film schools and um, actual formal education on this. So it was it was one of those things where I kind of didn't know how to get a career in film. But eventually, at the uh, I was at a sixth film college, West West Kent College in Tunbridge in Kent, and they just started up a a BTEC at that point in media media arts it was called and that had a module which had video production on it so that was after having made films with my mates just for fun I started doing it and getting a bit more formal teaching and I really enjoyed it so from there I then looked into what film schools were available and I ended up going to an art college West Surrey College of Art and Design and I did a degree in film so after doing my degree I then was writing scripts and I was working as an editor just trying to get any work I could and that was the genesis of me writing my first feature script, which was a vamp- low-budget vampire film called Razorway Smile, which I made for 20 grand. <laughs> so I really, really came through filmmaking as, a, as primarily a fan who loved it and then just getting and making my own work and really enjoying it. Well, we need, we need, we need more people who are fans of film to be making film, that's for certain. There's never, never enough of Absolutely. those in the world. Yeah, well, it's, it's strange. I mean, I, I, I would have thought to, to want to make films, you have to be a fan of films almost, because just, I, I, I think, you know, cinema, the people that I know who, who the filmmakers I respect, they seem to be used to cinemas in their kind of DNA. They, they live, sleep, eat and drink it. I mean, I wake up thinking about movies and, you know, the people I know, we're very obsessed with films. So I think that's one of the, I think you need that level of obsession to achieve as a, you know, a career as a filmmaker, because... It certainly is not an easy road to actually get get where you want to go as a filmmaker because of the, there's numerous sort of obstacles in your way. Less less in the in the case of getting hold of equipment now because you know back when I started, if you wanted to make a film, you really had to shoot on film, mm. and the the exorbitant costs of actually making stuff on 16 mil film and then 35 mil is incredibly expensive and very very difficult. Whereas these days, digital technology has really empowered people to be able to pick up cameras and editing equipment on their home computers so i think that 
it's a great time to to be a filmmaker if you want to learn how to use it because it's less cost prohibitive. But I do think sometimes because it's easier, people are less, they do less actual kind of real study into the craft of it, which is very important as well in the disciplines that you need to have if you want to succeed. Indeed, indeed. Now, now moving on to Draconian Days, um, now if I remember right, when I saw you played the first one at Fright Fest. That's correct, in 2010. There was almost like a clamour of, there was there was there was as much questions about the documentaries there was people going and you can make in a second one <laughs> um that seemed to be like it's like it was like an echo going around the room and uh, and I certainly conversations I had with people after you'd showed it was like god I hope they do another one now there wasn't there was I don't think from your from your end there was initially um a, a, a vision you were going to do that that wasn't the plan was it this, this no yeah that, that's absolutely correct it was, I mean it was interesting because the uh, let me tell you how the original documentary actually came about because cool. um, I set up a, a, a DVD distribution releasing company with my friend Mark Morris, who is mm. also one of the world kind of aficionados in terms of video analysis and has one of the greatest sort of pre-cert collections in the world, I would mm. say. Um, and uh, we, were, we, we had started off wanting to release cult films and we were looking at things which interested us. And we were always had been, you know, we were always interested in video analysis in that period because we'd grown up in that time. So we, initially, the whole idea of the video analysis release is we were going to just do it as a trailer compilation of of the seventy two trailers of the original video analysis in the scare. Um, but that, as we were talking about it, we started sort of getting more excited about it. And we thought, well, why not? Why just do a trailer compilation? Why don't we do a introduction to each each film and talk about why each film was actually banned and what was offensive in it? Mm. So we then thought, well, that'd be great. We we can go to different experts and academics or film journalists and get their, them to weigh in on these movies, which seemed really a really cool idea. Mm. And then as we were doing that, we thought, oh well, maybe we should do like a, a little documentary as a DVD extra for something you know which would. <laughs> accompany this whole set so from this initial idea of something quite simple which was this video analysis trailer comp it bloomed into this massive thing which <laughs> was then like these you know sort of five to ten minute intros for each each film and then this documentary which started off as a it started off as as the as an afterthought just as something fun to have on the set and as we were making it you know, about a year into making it, we thought, oh, God, this is a really huge project. And <laughs> it's, it's actually taking up, like, a long time. It took us about nearly two years to make the first one as well. And uh, so by the end of it, we had this, what well, surprisingly, we had a documentary which had turned out far better than we had originally anticipated. And, you know, particularly some of the interviews, when we started interviewing people like Martin Barker, who is a complete hero in the first one, all of a sudden the documentary had just transformed sort of formed something else. And when the Fright Fest guys saw it, they, they absolutely loved it and they wanted to program it for that year's mm. Fright Fest, which was the 2010 edition, and do and do a panel discussion. And, you know, big, we were surprised. Obviously, we weren't sure how, how interested people would still be in something that had happened, you know, 30-odd years ago. Mm. So when we screened it at Fright Fest, it was a delight to us that the audience absolutely loved it. And like you said, all of a sudden, there was this big clamouring about are you going to follow it up with another one <laughs> at, at, at the point which we just finished the first one and we're so relieved to have got the first one out of the way the last things in our mind was was trying to sort of do a sequel to it so to yeah. speak um so it was initially our response was no 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 that was this is it this is like this. Yeah, we've, we've, <laughs> um, but, we've captured the you know recording. once once the kind of dust had cleared a bit we actually started looking at uh, what we could potentially do to follow it up 
And that's when we started really researching the history of of what happened from where the the first documentary left off, which was 85 and the Video Recordings Act. And we realised during the research that there was actually a lot of key and interesting events but it was, a, it was a bit of a mountain to climb. And it was actually the Fright Fest guys, they kept on chiving us along because they kept on saying, us, have you, how have you started the documentary? Because we really want to program it for next year's Fright Fest. And that happened, that came, that you know, like from like about 2011 onwards. So finally in 2014, we were able to show it at the Glasgow Fright Fest. <laughs> so it was, yeah, Fright Fest were very fundamental in um, sort of making us really actively getting the second one done. And, and, and I mean, it's, it, it wouldn't be unfair to say that the, the, the Draconian Days is almost like the story of the cult of James Furman. Absolutely. Well, well, one of the things that we that because as soon as the Video Recordings Act got enacted, it was actually James Furman who was the chief censor at the time, the head of the BBFC. That we we realised that basically most of the really exciting stuff that happened in terms of British censorship and the second wave video nasty scare was it was it all when he was in power at the BBFC, which was, I mean, he was at the BBFC from 1975, but obviously the BBFC grew massively in size when it was enacted to be the body responsible for classifying videos because all of a sudden every single film on video, video released in the UK had to go through the BBFC, and that meant that any film that had been released prior to that point, which was then known as a pre-cert, a pre-certificated you know, video release, which basically meant before then films didn't need to have a certification to be released in this country, which was what they were trying to clamp down on, and that's why those films got banned beforehand, because they wanted to get rid of all of these unregulated video, which was a shame, because obviously it was we'd just all begun to really enjoy that stuff, and getting all this crazy stuff released on video, and then it all got controlled. So... That period with James Furman was when censorship really kicked in and it was called Draconian Days because censorship got very draconian at that point and horror films were just cut to ribbons. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, my, my main memory of that kind of watershed moment was pre-Video Recording Act. I mean, this, I mean I'm not sure you do this every week with your children, but my, I, we had a Sunday afternoon. Like, I'm sat with my dad, I must add. It wasn't like we were on our own mm. left-own devices. And we watched a double bill on a Sunday of Life of Brian, followed by Cannibal Holocaust. <laughs> That's quite a double bill. How, <laughs> how old are you? <laughs> I was, let me think now, I was 12. Right, well, I mean, that's the that's the kind of thing that back in those days, you know, I think that, I, I mean, I think most people have a clear remembrance of certainly going down to their local video stores and if they couldn't get hold of the kind of horror films that they would like to see, they uh, pretty much everyone remembers looking up at those incredible covers up on the sort of top shelves, thinking, "God, oh, I really want to see that." <laughs> but yeah, but then, then I remember vividly, obviously, that because obviously the original Cannibal Holocaust artwork is so lurid, uh, that cartoon painting, yeah, and then seeing it on the local news, going, "This snuff movie, yada yada yada," and suddenly it was like it cut completely recontextualized and I couldn't yeah. obviously at 12 I didn't understand what the hell it was going on about it was only like years later that I began to understand what had really happened <laughs> yeah well this is the thing I mean it, obviously depending on how old you are and sort of where you came in on the on the scares it it kind of does it's quite a defining moment but how, how did you feel as a 12 year old having watched um, Cannibal Holocaust <laughs> well it stuck with me and it's, it's it's an important film in terms of yeah. me and I'm sure it probably stuck with me more than if I'd watched it when I was 18 yeah I mean because obviously that's quite a, quite a hard film to watch at 12 years old, but also because it's quite it's a very intelligent film and it's quite interestingly 
you know, but I watched it with my stru- dad. Structured, you know? you know, it's a very postmodern sort of piece of filmmaking in a sense, and really is quite avant-garde for the time in the way that it presented its material too. But I watched, but I watched it with my dad. I didn't watch. It wasn't like we were left to be babysat by *Cannibal Holocaust*. Yeah, no, absolutely, no. Which, but, um, but like I say, I mean, I think that obviously your dad felt that you were able to cope with that as well, though. I mean, it's down to. I, I think I, it caught him out. We didn't get to see *Spit in Your Grave* and *Evil Dead* after that, though. Yeah right, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to wait a few years after. But then, but then, but like, but going going back to Jacobian days though. So after that, that was a big watershed. Suddenly, these things that I'd watched as a kid were suddenly being quashed. And well, yeah. Well, after that point, they, as you know, I mean, they were all yanked off the shelves and removed, mm. and you know, they were banned and prosecuted by the director of public prosecutions. Which so all of these things disappeared, or certainly they went under the counter, or you were then into the what created the initial. Tape trading, yeah, and, and I think one of the important these things, and I think one of the important messages from a kind of macro sense for the first documentary was, it was the Wild West. We had video shot. I mean, where I lived, we had about four or five video shops. There's mum and pop operations, making lots of money, and obviously the video recording that helped to rein in control. So you could yeah. have less. The less places to buy them and rent them, the less the, the less out of control it was, and obviously, it became yeah. the step, the, the clampdown that 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 you've sort of. That, that James Furman headed up, and that's the bit I hadn't really appreciated. So as I'm growing up, we're yep. watching things like Day of the Dead and, and yeah, because those, those things were made to be 18 certificates in the end, weren't they? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Chess well, I mean, a lot, a lot of these films, you know, certainly like you know the Romero ones, and a lot of the more mainstream films had had UK cinema releases. It's really, you know, the it's, it, the, the stuff that kind of really frightened the politicians and stuff was all these quite kind of strange foreign type horror movies that are coming in from different countries and you know that the the stuff which had never had a cinema release which was just coming out of nowhere that they just didn't know anything about and that's kind of what you know the british isles were quite insular and they you know when you look at the kind of political rhetoric at the time in the newspapers they 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 kind of feared this otherness coming in from foreign cultures and it's kind of quite an interesting examination of the way that you know the kind of so, the social classes reacted to this material, and it, it seems that the the kind of upper class educated people were kind of quite frightened by it. It seems, whereas the the, the working the working class people seem to really enjoy it, which is one of those interesting kind of class divisions that you definitely had because of video. Well, well, you know, I mean, you remind us all about the the sort of infamous quote by. Furman from is, is it from the, from the late seventies? Is yes, it that, that, the, the Furman quote was when he saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at I think it was in London. Uh, I think it's around nineteen seventy eight at the. Yeah. It was when it was shown at the um, the the BFI's um, you know festival that year. That That's whatever. Right, yeah. yeah, I mean we've got the program in the documentary of the exact date and time, but it was yeah like the, the it was a British Film Institute screening of the film, which was obviously really a, quite an intellectual kind of you know elitist kind of cinema environment but James Furman at that 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 point he sort of misjudged the audience and he came up with this quote that it was okay for you know like uh, the cine Easts and people who understood this kind of thing to watch it but it but how would it be if a sort of a factory worker from Manchester saw this and he wouldn't be able to take it and that's such a ridiculously out of touch classist view that he actually got shot down by a lot of people for that and I think it did reveal the way that he thought about films. It was okay if you had some sort of intellectual superiority in terms of your knowledge of, of film and film history, but if you were just a working-class person, you, you weren't able to cope with it, which is a ridiculous statement to have made. And well, I what's think interesting, it revealed, Jake, though, is like you say, yeah. that's 1978, yet really, 
the, the magic of his powers starts in 85. Exactly, but you've got, you've got to remember in 1978, this is when for stuff like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, that was when it was available in video in the UK, uncut, because it was that's when it was a preset and unregulated. So there are various yes, versions. Yes, yes, yes. There were various versions of, of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre that people could watch on video at that time. So it was released by about four or five different companies within that time period. Which, if you watch the intro for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is on the Section 3 um, introductions on the Definitive Guide 2, which Draconian Days is on, you'll see quite a lot of that history of the release oh, right. as well. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and like a lot of these films, remember they were available on video at this time because this is before regulation came in, which was, which happened, you know, the, the, the video recordings that went through in 1984. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely, there was definitely no certification on that Cannibal Holocaust I watched. Yeah, no, that, that wouldn't, that was a preset. I mean, Cannibal Holocaust was banned after that point. You know, this is the thing, it was banned in the, you know, and prosecuted. In the you know in the in the eighties when the whole scare kicked off with all of the, the the director of public prosecutions going getting involved and basically prosecuting things under the obscene publications act so it was declared an obscene article you know by British law and therefore banned so this is I mean this is what happened to films in that time period it's like it was pretty serious stuff that was actually happening when you when you realise that it's actually you know really it's just horror films and entertainment that they were. They were banning, and it's great that these things are not banned now. Obviously, there's a few things that still are, but on the whole, most of these things are now available, and people can watch them. And it's hard to see what all the fuss was about when you watch them in the, yeah, the light doubt. of reason. <laughs> and it was it was interesting. I mean, I can't remember the name of the woman who the 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 examiner that you that you interviewed quite a lot on. Yes, on, that's um, Carol Topolsky, who yeah, was yeah, one yeah. of the original censors who was brought in once the video recordings act had been enacted because. The BBFC grew in size because they needed a lot more people, and James Furman got in a lot of people like Carol, who, you know, were had all had background in, you know, they all had backgrounds in sort of. Um, uh, she was a psychoanalytic psychotherapist, and she had run women's rape crisis centres and things like that. So he had a mix of people with quite, you know, deep intellectual sort of backgrounds. Without, yeah, yeah, and 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 what 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 she showed in two ways really. I think there's this sort of two sort of almost like opposite bits with her is that there's the scene she describes where three where four of them including James I think are watching Lucy Fulci's New York Ripper that's correct yeah <laughs> and basically we're getting four people's reaction to a film but without any guidelines just basically going, there's no way on earth anyone's going to see this film basically and yeah. uh, we'll ban this yeah yeah we'll all agree while she's mopping up the tears of three other people and you're like yeah this, this, isn't, this isn't really what I call censorship. This is just somebody going, I don't think people should see this. That's it. Yeah. But also, this was based on the fact, and, you know, Carol mentions this in the doc documentary as well, and, uh, you know, she's a very intelligent woman and mm. very, you know, um, smart, but, you know, their view was they were shocked by these things, mm. and, um, and she says at that point, there were no rules for censorship at this point. They were literally making up as they went along in terms of video, because, you know, and this is where a lot of, the, the kind of quirks and peccadilloes that Furman had began to start emerging. And, you know, he had a massive problem with any film that had any what was called sexual violence, sexualized violence within within it. And at that point, they were making these rules up. But generally, Furman was of the mind that if it had any kind of um, what he called sexual violence or any kind of rape content or whatever, then that would be grounds for these kind of films to be banned because he felt that that was unacceptable you know, for adults, for adults to watch this stuff. I mean, obviously, the whole idea of classification, I think most people agree with, that it's good to have age ratings. So, you know, really, 
possibly as a 12 year old for instance you could say that cannibal holocaust isn't necessarily suitable Jake, I, mean, Jake, you, I couldn't you, agree with you more um but you said but uh, but ultimately a, a classification thing is a good idea but the problem with the bbfc to my mind is the pro- is the problem that they don't have a rating where if you're an adult st- things still get cut at the adult rating so even so when something's an 18 why is it still being cut you know if as long as it doesn't have anything illegal in it like yeah. uh, or anything like you know we're not talking about child pornography or or real violence to people which would be be illegal under the laws of the country anyway. So mm. we're talking about fictionalised works. Why is it that gore should be cut out of an 18-rated film, for instance? Surely adults should be able to choose to watch that if they yeah. so wish. Also, also as well, fictionalised work, which if you if you peel the layers back, essentially six foot from where you're watching that gore, there's a gaffer scratching his ass and probably having a fart. You know, it's not, it isn't real. <laughs> exactly. Um, but this is the thing. But when films were being, and particularly horror films in this period, were where... You know, because, say, somebody's eye was gouged out or there's a bloody wound or something like that, those that would be cut because it was deemed too violent or whatever. And yet, if you were a BBFC censor, you could watch it and it wouldn't send you mad and whatever. But for, if you were an adult living in the rest of the country, you were protected from that image, which was decided by these people, this group. And to me, that's the problem with censorship. Is I, I agree that it's good to have classification. It's good to, to have an age rating thing so that parents and there's guidance on you what can people can watch but, but yeah but really it comes down to what is it that you should should stuff be censored for adults and it always comes back to the same old things of grounds on child child protection and with and this is all explained in draconian days about the way the bbfc view that viewing a video in the home has they say that it, that has a different context to what it does in the cinema no. and in the end that's what david autumn was trying to do when he brought in his bill about you know, he he felt that no violent video should be available in the home and that basically any film, you know, above a PG could only be released in cinemas and it should be banned on video. And that's when people like James Furman actually really stood, actually then realised that they had to defend the right of films because then things like, you know, Schindler's List wouldn't even be able to be seen on home video. So, you know, so it would be an age of absolute draconian censorship. So all of these things kicked off. And often with politicians, though, they had their own political agendas as well. So, you, you know, you've always got to factor into these different different forces at work, which were certainly around at that time. No, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, I mean, it, it, it's, I mean for, for younger listeners, I mean, during that time, certainly David Alton, where he was didn't want violent films available. We had this hiatus where violent films generally weren't, unless they were art house. Absolutely. Well, well, a lot of a lot of films at that point were being withheld from being released. You know, because the BBFC would actually put the the brakes on a number of films, and they just wouldn't allow them to be released, or they got that they just. I mean, you talk you talk to someone here, Jake, that paid twelve pound for a pirate video of Reservoir Dogs because they exactly, yeah, well, never well, fa- famously, State. Reservoir Dogs wasn't actually banned, but basically, James Furman withheld giving a certificate right, yeah. for quite a long period because of the the political climate of violent films. But mm. ironically, Reservoir Dogs actually was a massive, it was a big success in the UK. It hadn't been a success in the States, funnily enough, at that point, and it had been released there. But because Reservoir Dogs got to play at cinemas for such a long time 
in the UK because it wasn't allowed a video release for over a year. It actually gave it a life in cinemas and it became a cult hit in mm. UK cinemas because of that. And I think Tarantino actually has acknowledged he sort of owes his career to the success of Reservoir Dogs in the UK. And then it went back into cinemas in the States and, and performed after it had become a cult hit here. So ironically, Furman <laughs> helped do Tarantino's career by not releasing on video for such a long time, <laughs> which is one of those strange ironies of, of censorship to some extent. <laughs> now, now, I think it's safe to say, isn't it, that as, as much as this is a look back in history, it's also a look back at a time that both you and Mark lived through. You're not, you're yes. not sort of picking the bones out of something you didn't know. You were actually in the middle of this as, as horror film fans, weren't you? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I, I think, that, you know, that's one of, the re- one of the reasons that, you know, this documentary or both documentaries were a labour of love love to us because you know it wasn't something we just wanted to rush out and do because we had to it's because something it meant something to us as people that had experienced that time and you know a lot of the people we know also owe their careers to that whether they became filmmakers or writers or magazine they put you know they set up magazines and there was so much creative energy that came out of that period but from people that sort of reacted to to what was happening and so in some ways like i say it did create this huge amount of positive creative energy through the restrictions that were put upon us obviously we didn't like those restrictions at the time but it did actually chivy up a lot of creative energy so that was a good thing in a sense you know and that's one of the things that we recognize in draconian days by looking at the underground horror scene that flourished because of censorship itself but certainly it was actually a scary and uncomfortable time. At the, so, it, you know, we, we don't want to put the rose-tinted glasses on too much because yeah. there's a warning in history that you've got to be careful of, of these things happening. And like Martin Barker said at the end of the last one, and, we, we, you know, I reprised the first documentary with it, we have to learn the lessons from history to make sure it doesn't happen again. And that is very important. And, you know, certainly with the internet now having an increased level of censorship and, you know, certainly with with blocks and filters which are happening, you know, I think we need to be aware that these things have happened in the past so we can have a voice to make sure we can see what's happening in the future. Without a doubt. So, so bearing in mind, like you say, you, like we say, you, you, you were sort of in the middle of this at the time as much as you were able to look back and think, how did it all piece together? What, what kind of new information did you uncover that, that obviously being being just, you know, just a young lad bit into horror films and stuff that you couldn't see at the time. Well, but well, at, well, at the, well at the time, I mean, I, I, you know, I was, a like I said, sort of teenager in the mid-'80s. So at the time, I remember, say, so it was like, you know, the Michael Ryan shootings were mm. like 87, um, 86, 87. So I was like 17 when that happened. Mm. And I remember seeing, obviously, that that news report on the TV and being very surprised at the time that that Rambo First Blood was being blamed for that incident because I'd seen that film and I I couldn't quite see the correlation of of that and the more you looked into the story the more it was just it seemed just because Michael Ryan had put a Rambo you know like he had worn a, a you know the kind of headband that Rambo had worn and obviously used a lot of high power guns but beyond that there wasn't really any similar similarities between the two things and it it seemed a bit of a a bit of a cheap shot to start blaming a film. And then I remember, once again, years years later, you know, you moved to 1993, sort of five, six years later, and the same thing happened with the Charles Play thing. And I remember that headline in The Sun, but for the sake of all our children, burn our, burn your yeah, video yeah, nasty. Yeah, yeah. And it just, it just seemed such a dis- disproportionate response to the idea that a horror film could have created this. And being a fan of horror, 
we all knew that Charles Play was a really tame anyway. It was hardly really. something which was a, you know, is a mainstream kind of almost kids horror film. It seemed. Well, so, I, mean, I mean, I was going to say, there's a great, there's a great bit you get with Kim Newman making that exact point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and that that's absolutely true. And it it, it made you feel that the certainly the press and the hysteria, you know, and having already seen that happen previously in the late 80s with the original nasty scare it just seemed that oh it's the same it's the same old rhetoric again um but at the time obviously being a teenager i mean i was probably you know more interested in you know going out drinking <laughs> trying to pick up girls all the of things course. you do as a teenager so i probably was less concerned about it as a teenager than i am now looking back at it realizing how with re- with with retrospective thinking you realize how important things were at that point you know, like in the 90s, I was in my early 20s. So I was actually I was actually at films, you know, at film school, actually in 1993, making my own films. So I was probably less concerned about what the media was doing at that point because I was too busy with my own life, if you know what I mean. So I think it was actually getting a chance to, to do the documentary and looking back at these things. Retrospectively, you realise how important these things actually were and... You know, also, you know, the the Bulger killings were so... That's such an awful murder. It's such mm. a terrible, terrible thing. And it's so facile to blame that on, on, on a video just because you want an answer to explain the acts of, that these boys have done. And, mm. you know, clearly the circumstances that, that happened in and the, their, their family backgrounds and the problems that those children had can't be boiled down to watching a single horror video. And it, it, there's no even proof they had even seen the film as well. So... It's more the fact that that horror films and cinema was being hauled over the coals as an easy easy answer for politicians to then have their own platforms and agendas. Yeah. And I think that's why, looking back at these things, I realise now when we researched them, it was it was looking at that information and seeing the motivations of what these people were doing. Whereas at the time, I think I was less aware of that when I was a teenager and in my twenties. Do you see what I mean? So totally, I think totally. I think that's really where being a filmmaker and being able to draw the research together. And once again, having been able to, you know, talk with people like Martin Barker and when we realised that the original scare was predicated on them faking the information as well, which he 100% correlated, and you realise that politicians were just basically using whatever statistics and views that they wanted to just basically further their own agendas. And when you realise the truth of that, and, you know, looking at the news now with all of this... um, paedophile scandal with politicians right now and the fact that all of that stuff got buried mm. you begin to see that it's always people in positions of power that are always you know they, they really do manipulate people for their own ends and you begin to to wise up to it and you and it becomes just you know you you kind of become disgusted with the way that these things are handled and certainly you know the the tabloid media are they whip up people, you know, the public into a frenzy over these things and create a climate of fear, a moral panic, which is always based on lowest common denominator thinking. And I, I think it's really to be aware of them doing that, to try and be able to set yourself free and see things for what they are and not be caught up in the idea that a film is to blame for something or whatever, you know. Well, so that, that, that's really enough. what's important. And as horror fans at the time, we, we, we were resisting this anyway because we thought it was all bullshit. And that's why we were ignoring the law and becoming criminals just by getting uncut copies of our favourite horror films and importing them from other countries, going to Holland. We were actually being criminals, and that that seemed like a lot of fun at the time, but it was only when you realised there were other people, you know, that actually then were being 
that they had dorm raids by the police and being busted and being fined and and you know taken to prison and I was going to say that's one of the, that's one of the big important messages of the of yeah. the film is to just imagine give me if I was to swap with you Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Cannibal Holocaust yep. that, that act alone was considered criminal yeah well exactly and also twenty years we, ago we, we we actually were in possession of obscene articles and yeah. could be fined or jailed because just for owning them you know and that that you know and when you look at it like that and you see this this footage in Draconian Days as well, which we, we've got some incredible footage of the police and trading standards doing these dawn raids on just, you know, teenage, teenage film fans and David Flint, who was arrested twice over that period. Um, and you think, well, hold on, we, we were living in a kind of, you know, it looks like a George Orwell 1984 totalitarian police state. Because, but when, and who are the people being arrested here? Um, like teenagers because they're horror fans. There's something. What's wrong with this picture? It's hard to imagine. But if you, if you, if for people listening, if you think about other things where the where the media just seems to have an agreed point of view. So let's say austerity for the last sort of three years. There hasn't really been much of a question to it. Everyone just keeps telling us it's necessary, mm. and we yeah. begin. So if you begin to, it, it, but but when it was something that seemed as trivial as just horror films, if all you read about and all you heard about in the news was these horror films are bad. Then if you yep. were interested in horror films, then it didn't seem like an important thing to miss. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, and it, remember, sorry, I don't remember, I, I, you reminded me with the, you've reminded me with the film of how yep. kind of lost that was, because you kind of thought, this is innocent fun. This isn't... Yeah, yeah. This isn't, well, exactly, I mean... But uh, now it's if, a crime. If, 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 in fact, these people were, um, as they say in the, the, the screaming headlines... You know, like fifteen-year-olds who were a part of a paedophile slash, um, uh, they call it a snuff film rings and things like that, because the because the newspapers and the, the and the uh, the news reporters, the you know, and we're talking ITV, BBC here, were continuously making these news reports saying that these were snuff films, and there is no, there's still no proof of any real snuff film ever coming to light or being traded. Well, certainly not in the commercial yeah. sense. I mean, I, I yeah. read... I mean, um, um, but what's weird is when they say snuff films, they then show in the same news report boxes, and it's like the Blood Spattered Bride and House of <laughs> Whipcord, and they're, and these are snuff films? It's just that the people who were doing the news reports and the and the, and the journalists, they they hadn't, they were so non-au-fait with horror films, they had no knowledge of actual horror films that they just thought that these titles were obscene and they just believed that the things in them were real. Mm. And it's kind of like, it's it's the fact that the information from the, the powers that be was so poor and they had no knowledge of the subject as well. And and it was very difficult at that time because if you were a horror fan and you were, de- and you were standing up to defend these things, you were mostly shot down. And we've got some archive footage of when like Alan Jones and Stephen Javorsin, who, who set up the shock around the clock festival and Ellen, where everyone knows Alan for fright fest and mm. his journalism work. He's, he's on one of these chat shows defending, you know, horror films and, you know, you can see how difficult it was. You know, he even wore his very snappy purple suit so he didn't look like a complete weirdo. But, you know, he, he was still being shot down by these people for defending horror um, because you were still branded as a weirdo if you if you like that. And you've got to remember, in a time before social media and, you know, home computers and mobile phones and um, basically, as a horror fan, you didn't have a voice because unless you were 
a published published in a newspaper or there was a report on television. That was the only access to news that most people had. So it wasn't like horror films could actually stand up and defend these things. Because if you said, oh, you know, you were a fan of Necromantic, then obviously a normal person would think, oh, well, that's disgusting and filthy. Mm. Well, no, and it was so, great. And it was, it, from, from, I mean, being, growing up in Manchester, it was great that you uh, you included David Karekis from, uh, from Hebdo. Yes. Yeah, well, but also with the whole thing that happened, you know, the, the you know, you had the lunatic um, police chief up there. Well, yeah, uh, that was. I mean, I grew grew up through that. I, I, the shops were raided all the time in places I yeah. used to get my videos from. Yeah, absolutely. And David Kerrickus and the whole thing was kick off in Manchester. You know, it was uh, James Anderson, God's Cop, mm. another one of these insanely, you know, kind of um, guys in authority who was a extreme right wing Christian with very strange views who believed that God spoke to him. And he was the guy policing Manchester who would be basically sending his troops out to pick up anything if it didn't have a BBC certificate on it. And, and, and as, the, as the narrative arc, as, 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 as all great stories, the narrative arc of Draconian Days is, is, is filled with irony. As, the, as, like, as like you were saying there, David Alton was wanting to go even further with the yep. idea of what classification is all about. And thank God he was a Liberal Democrat, not a Tory. Yeah, but isn't that strange, though? But, but this is what's even really strange, is the fact that David Alton was a Liberal de Democrat, and, and he had the backing of over 200... It was over 220 politicians in the House Jeez. on that, in the original, when he put his amendment forward. So it was cross-party. There was no, So where's the measured response from, from any of the parties? And this, what, this is what shows you... Uh, it, you know, uh, my, my belief in politicians, and, and I think that so many people's, is that... Uh, I don't even give a shit about what party they come from anymore because, to be honest, when it comes down to a lot of things, it just seems that all parties are exactly the same. They're equally stupid about mm. most stuff. <laughs> and certainly when it comes down to, to censorship and horror, they basically all of them are conservative or, conser you know, and it's such a shame that you don't really get people standing up for civil liberties, it seems, in any parties, but but you're you're you're, you're uh, like we're saying there. So so David Alton becomes this kind of almost like uh, cheerleader for even more censorship, and then James Furman, having been the kind of personality at the centre of all this, becomes more liberal in his absolutely. Well, this is motivations this is, for the BBFC. Absolutely. Well, this is one of I mean one of the reasons that I think. The documentary is fascinating, and as you say, James Furman is one of the key players, and this is his his reign, if you like, at the BBFC, and he gets likened to having a fiefdom, often by people mm. in the documentary, but he did basically seize control, and he, he did, as Carol Toposky even says, he said he came sort of drunk on his own power, mm. and, he, and he, he is this fascinating character, he is this you know, art, highly articulate, intelligent, sort of charismatic guy who was very good at speaking in the media, always very calm and always had a view. And he, he was somebody that, you know, sort of got away with manipulating his own views as well and, and basically getting away with the, controlling how he thought censorship should be. So he was almost a kind of dictator type figure. But when it came to the autumn thing, he realised things had gone too far. And obviously... He was the guy in, the head of the, in charge of the BBFC, and when Autumn was blaming, you know, Charles Play Free for the ills of society, then, you know, that film had been given a BBFC certificate, so it was quite right that James Furman had to stick up for, for, for that, because effectively, if he hadn't, then, once again, all certification would have been sort of stopped on video, and you would have had this uh, not... 
Furman was sorry. Um, Alton was going for this new certificate, which would have been branded not suitable for home viewing, which would have been basically anything over PG. So effectively, none, no, nothing would have been available in the home to view above the PG rating, which would have been ludicrous. And of course, Furman was an intelligent and sensible person, and to his credit, he did step up and very importantly got involved with the debate at that point. And once again, the other thing about Furman, which is the the other sort of bizarre thing is that he then got involved with trying to legalise pornography in the, yeah. in the UK. And this very strange thing at the end of the career, which saw him actually getting sacked from his job, was when he had this quite strange sort of liberal streak. But it once, but a lot of it, once again, was tied in with his own ego because he just thought he could set policy without, <laughs> without going through any of the proper channels. And he kind of came undone, which is one of those great kind of hoisted by his own petard moments in film history. <laughs> what, would, what would you say was... Um your sort of most surprising discovery in your kind of look back over this period, what was, what would have been the most well, surprising? I, I don't know, God, because there's so many, there's so many things that, that just crop up. I mean, just, just different incidents, but sometimes it's just some of the things that happened or some of the things that people said, it's almost unbelievable that they could stick, stick to their point. Um, you, do you know what I mean? It's just like when you realize what Autumn was trying to do and you see these archive things of him talking about it, he he just seems one of those kind of, you know, when somebody is so obsessed to the point they've become kind of like a kind of shrill kind of. That happened to you. Are you, are you there? Hold on, you just put me on hold then. Sorry, yeah, my phone just rung. So someone phoned me, so I just ah. had to decline the call. <laughs> sorry about that. Sorry <laughs> about right. that. Um, sorry. So you were uh, saying that you were saying that the, the point. Yeah, no. So I think it was just some of the just looking at some of the news footage and looking at what people said. It, I just think I because I obviously. I'd never seen all of the, because we went through hours, you know, like sort of hours, you know, hundreds of hours of footage, but some of the news footage is just unbelievable. You know, like, I, um, because I wasn't, didn't grow up in the North as well. I mean, I wasn't aware of James Anderson, for instance. Oh, he was phenomenal. God's cop. I mean, and when, mm. when David Kerricus told us about that and, and C.P. Lee, who was also in the documentary. Of course, yeah, yeah. Well, I was just finding about that. It was just, another, he was another one of these kind of sort of Mary Whitehouse figures, but an, an incredible position of power once again. And, you know, like Graham Bright in the first documentary, mm. you know, who basically has had, who's not changed his views one iota since. He, he still believes that the film Snuff is a real snuff movie, <laughs> you know. Seriously, yeah, Jake, but, that, was, that was the bit that blew my mind, that the sort yeah. of, Obviously, seeing the archive footage, you've got this man who's scared of this new thing. But then you've interviewed him in in, in present day. Exactly, and he he doesn't realise. He still believes that 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 is that snuff was a real snuff movie. He he can't see that it's it's completely fake. So the fact is, is that these people just don't change their views. And we one thing that we really wanted to get for Draconian Days was was an interview with um, David Alton, and we 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 sent him letters and emailed him and but we got absolutely no, no response from him so he won't go won't go back on record and talk about it now in terms in terms of making it and like you say that you wanted to do it properly uh, logistically there's a lot there's a lot to do because there's and, and like you were you were alluding to there the stuff in the, in Manchester was was more new to you than say the general national use so yeah. how did you and mark set about sort of assessing the kind of archive footage and then finding the people to talk to well, the, the the main thing was sort of coming up, coming up with a list of all of the people that were we ideally wanted to talk to. So, for instance, with the BBFC, we knew that we wanted to speak to somebody who was there and worked with James Furman at that time. That was really important to us. So, 
we went through just the list of the people that we could see that had worked there. We saw we saw Carol on a number of other archive interviews that we've watched, and she was really good. And mm. so so we had a kind of hit list of people we just wanted to see if we could get to. Like also, we spoke to some people who were working the BBC now, like David Hyman's on there. But he was actually he was working at the BBC when Furman was there. He started, um, I think, in about uh, I think it was in the late 80s or something, uh, Dave, so for 86 even. Mm. But he was in the admin side of it. Um, but then he became an examiner, I think, just after James left. But he, So he had worked there at that point. But having someone like Carol, who was more an equal to Furman in terms of the job she was doing at that point, mm. was really important. Then with obviously different speakers, people like um, David Kerikus and, you know, like uh, obviously people, all of the, the journals that we know through, you know, like Alan Jones and Kim Newman, which we interviewed with the first one. There are people that we have basically contacted and just to sort of see if they had stories that they might want to tell. Finding somebody like, we found David Flint in the end, but finding somebody who would come on camera and talk about actually being arrested yeah. and going through that thing, that proved difficult because there were a number of people that we approached, but they didn't want to talk about it now because they're, they're still in, like the jobs that they do, some of them are like teachers and things like that. And bringing that stuff back up, could actually affect their jobs now if, if you know, the people they're worried about being judged still. So of there course, is, there course. are, you know, some people feel under pressure that if they reveal that they, you know, were arrested for having video analysis, it could affect their jobs now because, you know, the media are still very, um, you know, very spiteful in many ways. And, mm. and you do get this kind of feeling that you're being tarred by a certain brush. So we had to be sensitive to that. And there are other people that we just couldn't trace because, you know, they'd either left the country or died, you know. So it's, it, it, it was a long process. I mean, Mark Mark Morris is really, he's written several books on the video analysis. Course, yeah. um, so he he has quite a, a, a sort of in-depth knowledge and contact base. Obviously, David Alton was somebody we really wanted to talk to, but we just couldn't get through to his, you know. There, there, there is a website for, that, he, that he has, and we sent numerous messages, but we just got no response. So unlike... You know, unlike Graham Bright, who we were very lucky to get an interview with on the first one, which was a big coup for us because he hadn't actually talked about it for a long time. Mm. Um, so we were amazed when he he agreed to do it on the first one. So with Autumn, what we did is obviously if we couldn't get an an interview, we went and tried to get as much archive as possible on that person. With James Furman, we were very lucky that a friend of ours, David Kenny, had uh, shot a, a very long interview with, with James Furman, and that's that forms the backbone of Furman of, um, because we. For me, it's very important that obviously Dave, Dave, James Furman couldn't um, defend himself because he's dead now. Obviously, of course, yeah. so so the point was, I I didn't want to do a a hatchet job on James Furman because that would have been very, you know, that would have been obvious and just stupid to do that because he was of this this, you know, intelligent, well-rounded character. So I really wanted to get over his views as well. So with the documentary, it's very important to me to feel that there was a balanced approach to this. Um, oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, I think you definitely. Give us the charismatic James Furman. You, you're certainly not pointing the finger at him because you don't yeah. need to. <laughs> yeah, and he absolutely gets to speak his views and how he felt about censorship as well and what his policies were. So, you know, one, one of the things with the documentary as well, which I started with the first one, is it, to me it's, it was about listening to people's stories and and finding about what happened to them. And then as an audience, you know, presenting that information, uh, you know, I don't use any voiceovers. I don't have any authorial voice in terms of the documentary, me as a filmmaker saying, this happened and this is what you should think. Mm. It's very much people telling their stories from different sides of the argument and allowing you to listen to what they say 
and then you can make up your own mind depending on whether you think that they're what they're saying is credible or if you, do you see what I mean? And no, I no, think, no. There's, there's a there's a there's a book that does a similar thing. I mean, one. Of, I mean, it's interesting when we were talking earlier about about Graham Bright not changing his views. One of the things that certainly I set about because it it is interesting without social media how you know isolated sounds a bit too dramatic, but you know I was reading head press and things like that and yeah. and. and, and and you were you were one of your you were one on your own doing this, and then suddenly in the news you're being told that what you like and do is is illegal, and they're gonna they're gonna ban it. So that kind of felt a bit weird. So I started to read books about it, starting with things like, you know, like Tom Jew Matthews censored, which actually yeah. got made into a TV series. But there's a fantastic one by Carl French called Screen right. Violence. I don't know if you've ever read that one. I haven't. I haven't read that one. No, that's and that's got essays from Mary Whitehouse as well as essays from sort of pro, uh, sorry, anti censorship people. So it's, yeah. It, it's 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 eye opening and 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 look everybody's views are valid. That's the point of free absolutely. Speech. Well, I think the thing is, is the truth with censorship as well is, is that it's such a. I do you know I'm I'm very aware having to talk to so many people that everybody has a slightly different stance on what they think is acceptable and what they don't. I mean, I can talk about my own opinion on an interview like this, and I can tell you what I think. But in terms of the documentary, it's not about. The documentary doesn't exist as my opinion on it. it. It's trying to be a recorded history of the facts of and things that happened to people that lived through that time. And that's what I wanted to, to present in terms of the documentary, which I always hope gives the audience a chance to bring their own views to the table and examine about what they think or, or agree or disagree with what people have said. You know, and I think that that, to me, that is, makes a better documentary than when you have a documentary which has a, a loaded agenda um, about what you should think by the end of it. And of course, you know, some people would say, well, you know, you're a horror filmmaker and a horror fan and you're biased. And you could, and I can, I can understand that, that view as a as big said. But I think if you look at the documentary, I'm not presenting the information in, in a way which is trying to lead you, though. No, no, I, th- I, th- I think, I think that's, that, that's the power of the documentary as, as it stands at the moment, is that you take us through a period of time and show us events and use authority voices like your Alan Jones, like Kim Newman, like Alex Chandon. The, the stuff with Alex Chandon is really, really powerful because especially yeah. when you when you clip it together with the archive footage of him being pulled over the coals by some shrill Tory MP yeah. who's sat next to David Holton, it's kind of he was what would he have been then? About twenty two or something? Yeah, well, yeah, Alex was very young then, so mm. yeah, it must have been about twenty two. Yeah, so he's <laughs> twenty three. Yeah, he's, get, he's he's having a public debate on live TV about something he feels passionate about, and yet these people. And not listening. They're just there to say what is important to them, and that's it. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and you know, it's a, I think, it, you know, with Alex, and he was thrown into a different world all of a sudden. He had all of these people that were trained in public speaking just mm. sort of shouting him down, basically. And, and it was one of those things, and this is one of the things from the documentary you realise, once again, if you were a horror fan, these people weren't interested in listening to your views at the time. And this is one of the things that hopefully has changed now. It's they kind of, these people have to listen to our views now because we have the internet and social media and things where we can get our views across in a way that we couldn't back then. So, and I think, you know, like I say, with this, this kind of documentary wouldn't have been possible to have made in the 80s or 90s because, you know, broadcasters and people wouldn't have been interested in us expressing views from, you know, the other side of the argument in a sense. It was very loaded in their in their opinion and I think that's what's interesting about when you listen to what they were saying. You can see that their views were highly visible at the time. And it was the people... So it actually 
like I say, the, the fact that if James Furban hadn't stood up to David Orton, then nobody else was willing to, it seemed, at a mm. certain point. <laughs> No, it is. It's, it's kind of. It, it's. It, I mean, I love the, the. I mean, at the. I was fortunate enough to go to the, the the screening you had at the Prince Charles just recently. Oh, great! Cool. And <laughs> it was a great night. It was a good night, and uh, I think it was Mark coined the phrase "Robin Hoods of Gore," which was kind yeah. of like that. <laughs> That's that lovely phrase. But also well, Mark, the... well, well, Mark tells you that tells that terrific story, which is something obviously I didn't know Mark at that time. But when he tells the, the story that he was so fed up of, of everything being censored and cut down his local video shop, oh. that him and his mate they had a buy one, you know, you had a buy rent one get one free nights one night of the week. Yeah. And what him and his mate would do, they would go down and instead, so they would tape the uncut version of Demons or the animator over the cut version <laughs> <laughs> so that anyone renting that tape would get a chance to see the uncut version which is brilliant and I love the fact that there's some people in, the, in this country who, who would have rented out that tape and, and got to see an uncut version accidentally and probably think that you know, be surprised if they ever saw it again and it was cut. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I mean, and it is it, the, the, just the, the way that the word, the word video nasty is such a loaded gun. Oh, yeah, it is. It's, it's such an, you know, it's, decency, it's, as it were. Yeah, but also the fact that in the in, in the nineties it got it got branded on mainstream Hollywood films. Basically, mm. in in the original scare, it was these weird low budget independent films which got under attack. But by the nineties, it was basically mainstream Hollywood products. You know, it was Child's Play, it was Halloween Four, it was basically anything that they could throw a label at because it, they wanted to control control the whole kind of media outlets. It seemed, and you know, they had already won on the the kind of low budget stuff. It was then. They were basically trying to stop Hollywood filth. <laughs> so totally, to totally. I mean, that was, yeah, like you say, that's where kind of David Owen's campaign becomes a bit crazy. Um, now, what it's going to be released on DVD when? It's released on, just coming up on July the 14th, and that's the free disc set. So I was going to say, so do you, want to, do you want to tell us what it is we're going to get in this? Because obviously the first oh, yeah, one was a bump. Absolutely. Well, um, this is... Yeah, this is this is this set is called uh, Video Nasty's The Definitive Guide Volume Two, mm-hmm. uh, which is a direct follow-up, and it's a companion set to the first one. And this one contains the Draconian Days documentary on disc one, and there's some some other goodies on there. There's like a fanzine flashback gallery, which has got over 300 sort of fanzine covers from that period, and Brilliant. all sorts of other little treats. We've got some Easter eggs on there if people can find them. <laughs> um, but on the other two discs, which is another additional 13 hours of content Jesus. we have the what is called the uh the section free list and this is there was a lot of confusion at the time as to what was a video nasty and what wasn't and when we were researching the original uh, definitive guide we went into the bbc bbfc archives and got all, all of this information all the different lists that are available and we discovered that there was a second category called, well it's a third category section free and under Section 3, it was all of the films at the time which were seized by the police, and they were removed from video shelves, and there was a, the DPP was starting a list against them. But in the end, they, they, would, they were destroyed, but they weren't prosecuted. So they were the kind of second-wave lesser nasties. But some of the films on the Section 3 list are, are, are worse than, 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 in terms of violent content, are worse than some of the ones on the, the actual DPP's... Uh, 72 list which is interesting of course there's a bunch of stuff on there a whole bunch of stuff which is quite inoffensive and shouldn't be on there at all but it's quite an eclectic and interesting list and that's an additional 82 titles on that list and that that's films which range from stuff like headless eyes the love butcher death weekend 
all the way to, to sort of mainstream stuff like Phantasm and The Thing. And you've got other famous ones on there, you know, like Extro, um, um, Final Exam, and, you know, it's a great broad range of films. Um, okay. So it's a fascinating sort of discovery for people to look at this Section 3 list. So it'll clear up why some of these films were thought of um, video analysis. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre was a Section 3 title because it was seized but not prosecuted but it was removed from sale, as we all know. And then Furman refused to give it a certificate, and hence it was never banned. Um, so, yeah, um, on, on, the, on the Section 3 list of these 82 titles, you've got every trailer for all of those films, yeah. and we have a bespoke feature introduction for, for each of those like we did on the first one. So you've got uh, ranging from sort of three or four minutes all the way up to about 12 or 13 minutes for some of the longer ones. And so there's a huge amount of wealth of information on those and facts. Sounds amazing. And yeah. So it's a really, have, have you managed to have a look at the, uh, have I've you got, got the, yet. No, I've not seen okay. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, um, it's uh, like I say, you've got 13 hours of content there and you can, you can choose to either watch the trailers on their own or you can watch them with the introductions or watch the intros on their own. So it's up to you, but I think watch the intro and the trailer and a number of people who managed to get hold of an early copy of the set have been, uh, giving us some lovely feedback on on uh, Facebook, praising how enjoyable it is, and some people are starting to watch the 13 hours again for a second time if they liked it so much, which is nice to know. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, look, so that's out on the 14th of July. Yep. And one 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 last question I like to ask everybody. Now I apologise, so you can uh, you can have a think about it. Is give me a underrated British film that you think deserves more kudos. Okay. Well, um. Let's see. Well, uh, as you know, I did the um, the one of the I don't know if you know or maybe your your people listening to this will know. I did one of the ABCs of Death, which yes, was an uh, anthology film. Um, but my favourite anthology film, which is a which is a basically a minor classic and possibly the best anthology film ever made, was a British film made in um, 1945 called Dead of Night. Oh, wonderful. And um, it's a black and white anthology movie, but it's the best anthology horror film you'll ever see. Not only is it it's, it's terrific and scary, it's actually got, it's one of the few anthology horror films where, where the wraparound story actually works Without and leaves you with an out. absolute chill, on your, chill in your bones when you mm. see it. And it's got this, ex, one extraordinary segment is about um, this uh, um, sort of a, uh, ventriloquist doll, which is a great horror staple. And I think th this may have been the f one of the first times the ventriloquist doll was ever used in a horror context in, right. in this film. Right. And it, it's just such a brilliant film. It's very British and it's got that, that, that wonderful kind of great characters. It's so beautifully made. So I'd recommend to anyone who hasn't seen Dead of Night. I was going to say, I think that's a solid recommendation. Uh, that, yeah. was one, that was one I, I mean, I, I did, um, recently did a sort of 20 British horror films you should see. Yeah, and I included that in the list. That is, I think. Oh right, okay, yeah, you you know it then, Stu. Oh god, yeah, no, that is yeah. A, that is a, yeah, a, a, yeah. And, and obviously because it's it's quite a lot earlier than most people would uh, would ever, you know, it, it, you you don't think, oh, I'm going to watch a sort of 1940s sort of film sometimes, and you'd think, oh, it probably won't be that scary, but believe me, this film delivers. If you haven't seen it, it really is a terrific piece. It's of kind of like, I mean, if you, have you it's a different type of film, but have you, have you seen Billy Wilder's Lost Weekend? Um, no, I haven't actually. Which is 1946, no. which tackles yeah. mental health and alcoholism. Wow, and, well, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to add that to my list. <laughs> um, but, but you know, it's that kind but of Billy thing. Billy Wilder's a fantastic filmmaker, amazing. And obviously, filmmaker. And, and, but it's that period after we've just finished the war. So people are making films where, like, Dead of Night has 
sort of really yeah. scary implications in it, which is way ahead of its time for... Exactly, yeah. Well, what well, I think those films have a real resonance because also so many people had lost people at that point as well. And mm. there were, the horror had, was quite a real thing to people. But, yeah, I mean, it is something... Yeah, there's something special about that movie, certainly. Mm. And it's one of my, it's one of my all-time favourite British films, actually. I mean, and I... Another film, which I, I, isn't a horror film, but it's a, and it's it's not a film that you could say <laughs> anyone needs to rediscover in the sense it's not like a lost film or ignored. But mm. certainly, you know, one of my favourite all-time films is um, Powell and Pressburg as a Matter of Life and Death, which was also made post-war. You know, um, have you seen that? I've not Do, seen that one. No. But a Matter of Life and Death is an, is a fantastic, beautiful film. Um, you know, it's about an airline pilot who thinks he's dead, and he's and he's he's stuck between like the the afterlife and this life because he falls in love with, a, with an American girl in the in the Air Force. So that's a fantastic film. If you haven't seen that, it's one of the most beautiful films you'll see. I shall I shall check that out. But look, uh, before before I forget, thank you very much for your time for coming on the podcast. Yep. And I hope I hope you shift lots of DVDs and lots of people. Thank you very much. Who maybe yep. were a bit younger than us get to see, but get reminded of a time that they don't want to repeat. Really. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I think it's important that they, they, they watch this and take some of those lessons and um, hopefully that will help empower us all against anything like this happening again. Indeed, indeed. It's the Gritflix.com podcast. It's the Gritflix.com podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, wow. 